Welcome to the podcast of Eden Worship Center. We believe that God has perfectly revealed himself through scripture alone, and that salvation comes by grace alone, from faith alone in Christ alone, and that everything is for the glory of God alone. So as we study God's unchanging, inerrant word together, ask God to open your eyes, to open your eyes to see yourself and your own sin clearly. Open your eyes to see Jesus clearly, and pray that God would give you the grace to repent, to turn from your sin, and the faith to trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you'd like more information, go to our website at edenworshipcenter.co. Would you turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 3, continuing in our verse-by-verse study through the book of Hebrews We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 6 this morning. And when you have found it, would you stand together with me as we show honor to the word of the Lord as we read it together. I'm so convinced, church, that our hope is not anchored in how good or how bad things are going in your life. It's not anchored in uh, this virus. It's not anchored in this election It's not even anchored in this church or your family. Our hope is anchored in the God who has revealed himself in this word. And so let us together look with reverence to his word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We pray, O God, that you would bless the reading of your word. We pray that you would bless the hearing of your word, that our hearts and minds would be fertile soil, that your word would take root inside of us and bear fruit for your kingdom's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we look to this passage, I want to just point you quickly to what I I think the author is saying here, and that is God is building a house. Not a physical house, not, not a building, as it were. He is building a family. He is building sons and daughters who were created in his image, but now have been adopted into his family. All mankind was created in the image of God, and yet sin has stained and contaminated that image. It has marred that image, yet in Christ we are now seeing that stained and broken image adopted into the family of God, now being made more and more into the likeness of the Son, Jesus himself. We bear his name. We're being conformed to his likeness. God is painting a picture of himself through you. Whether it is the church, whether it is your family, whether it is your personal life, whether it's your marriage, how you interact with your kids, kids, how you interact with your parents, God is painting an image of himself in you. So kids, if you have that that, uh, follow along in the sermon worksheet, right on the back when you flip it over, there's a little picture frame. So while we're talking this morning, draw a little self-portrait of yourself and then show it to your mom and dad. See how close you get to being an artist who can draw a self-portrait. We're, we're going to come back at the end and end by looking at what it means that God is drawing. He's painting a self-portrait of himself using us. We are the colors that he is painting with. Let's look almost, not verse by verse, but word by word uh, through these first few verses here in Hebrews chapter 3. It begins with the word in verse 1, therefore. And it's sort of a cliche. You've heard it again and again in the church, and yet it bears repeating. When you see the word therefore, come on, help me out. You should find out what it's it's there for. Why do we see the word therefore in the text at the beginning of verse 3? It's because the writer of Hebrews is pointing back at chapters 1 and 2. All that has come before. The word therefore acts like a bridge between what has been said and what he is about to be saying. If this is true... 
then I can, with confidence, point you towards this, is what he is saying. All through chapters 1 and 2, the writer of the Hebrews has been making the point, in the past, God spoke through his Son. If you look back at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed. When we first read that, we kind of quickly moved over that, although we're going to see that playing out in these verses, that it is God the Father who is appointing the Son, who is commissioning, even commanding the Son to carry out His role as Son, as Redeemer upon the earth. But let's begin with the right framework. Are the Father and the Son equal? You're looking at me like, I'm not sure. I think this is a loaded question. I don't want to answer this wrong. Uh, they are co-equal members of the Trinity. They, they are both truly God, fully God, fully divine, fully powerful. And yet within the Godhead, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they have different roles that they function in. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is any less God than God the Father. Jesus is no less God. In fact, to say that, to say that Jesus is a created being, which uh, many cults have said, makes you outside of the Orthodox faith. No, there, there is complete equality within the Godhead, although they have very, very different roles. We should learn a lesson from that maybe in our marriages and in our nation. In the past, God has spoken through His Son, who He appointed to be the creator of all things, who was greater than the angels, who is in fact our great high priest. He is the propitiation of God's wrath for our sins. You remember we talked about that last week. And now he says, therefore, because that is true, and now he turns to his audience and he says, holy brothers. This is not speaking to the spiritual elite. This isn't as if on a Sunday morning during the sermon we're like, all right, now, listen, all of you normal schmucks, do your own thing for a few minutes. I'm going to talk to you holy brothers over here. Right? That, that's not at all what he is getting at. In fact, in using this, he's not talking about personal holiness. Like, that there's certain degrees of how good you are in the church. There, there's those who've come to church for two years, and there's some, some have come for five years, and, and some for 20 years, and they've really got stuff figured out. No, that's not at all what he's pointing to. In using the phrase holy brothers, he is saying the church, the ecclesia, the called out, the gathered in Christ. By the way, it's important for us to just stop and point this out. Although we don't always see it, the Holy Spirit is always sanctifying every believer. This isn't an option when it comes to becoming a Christian. Well, I became a Christian, but I never really did the sanctification thing. No, the Holy Spirit is always working to make us holy believers. Hebrews was written, let's just give ourselves a little bit of context here. Hebrews was written to these scattered Jewish believers. Scattered believers who have put their faith in Christ, and yet they're carrying with them all of the Jewish traditions. How many of you have ever been tempted or actually said the phrase, well, in the church I grew up with, Anybody else been ever tempted to say that? It's sort of this experience, this tradition of how I think things should be done on a Sunday morning. How I think things should be done in the life of a believer. Which can be a little scary when you get around Reformed people who are constantly talking about, let's, let's push aside some of these traditions of man that really don't actually lead us closer to holiness in God. They, they just make us feel a little bit more self-righteous. And some of us, because of the traditions we grew up in, can start feeling really uncomfortable. That's where these Jewish believers are at. They grew up with very deep Jewish traditions of what it meant to be a follower of Yahweh. They are steeped in the Old Testament law. They are steeped in Moses. In fact, it's impossible to think about uh, the Jewish tradition, whether it's then or today, without talking about Moses. Moses was the center of all of that. Many of these Christians have been expelled from their synagogue, uh, their their place of gathering, uh, the place of teaching, because of their faith in Christ. And now they're wrestling with what does it look like to keep the Jewish traditions and yet at the same time have faith in Christ. That's the broad context of this book of Hebrews. 
they're thinking that because the entire Old Testament, the whole Levitical system of worship was primarily about holiness. He addresses this, holy brothers. It, the whole Old Testament was about holiness. That God is a holy God, and he says, therefore you be holy just as I am holy, except as we talked about a little bit ago, sin has marred that image of God in us. Sin has stained and contaminated everything from how we see the world, how we think about ourselves, even how we approach God. And so the whole Old Testament was a system of sacrifice and obedience that we might come closer to walking in holiness with God. And yet, even in that, it was pointing us forward. We talked about every lamb was pointing us towards Jesus. There, there's no two, two systems of salvation, an Old Testament through works and a New Testament through grace. No, even in the Old Testament, it was saying, be holy, live holy, honor God, and you're not able to fully do this. You need a substitute. Even that was pointing us to Christ. What a rich and beautiful description that you would look at us, that you would look at them. Now, if you look around the room, uh, most of the people look pretty decent this morning. They just got it all together, like you're pretty sure they showered and probably brushed their teeth. Although with the mask, it's hard to tell, right? We'll give, we'll give you a few months. If your teeth are falling out, we'll know, you know. You can look really good on the outside. In fact, sometimes it's easier to look at other people who are here and go, well, they've got it together. I'm really the one who's struggling. I'm the one who's having a really difficult time. What a beautiful description that the writer to the Hebrews would look at that group of people and go, holy brethren. Sisters, by the way, that includes you as well. This is those who've been adopted into the family of faith because of the finished work of Christ. We are joined together with God and joined together with one another. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see a band of misfits. He sees holy brethren. Those who've been adopted as sons and daughters. Because that's true, he says, we share in a heavenly calling. Not just some uh, church idea, we haven't adopted our purpose-driven church, and, and this is our purpose in our church, and that church has their purpose, and this church has their purpose. No, we have a holy calling, one holy calling with the universal church of all believers in all places at all times. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this, holy, believer, holy unbelievers do not exist. It is impossible to share in God's heavenly calling and remain unrepentant. It requires repentance and faith, and it means that the blood of Christ has cleansed you, and you are now destined for heavenly glory according to God's infallible purpose. I'm just going to read that one more time to you. Don't just think of this as being theologically true. I want you to hear this with ears that say, this is true for me. And it, it's to the exclusion of all those who reject Christ. Holy unbelievers do not exist. If you this morning are listening to the sound of my voice and you are separated from Christ, you are not in Christ, there is no Holy Spirit working within you to sanctify you. You're on your own. It is your righteousness that has to stack up to God's perfect righteousness, his perfect holiness, and you cannot ever accomplish that. Why? Because it is impossible to share in God's heavenly calling and remain unrepentant. Yet how many quote-unquote Christians do we know who have just sort of scooted along in the church for decades, some of them, and we do not see the evidence of repentance in their life? Being a Christian, it requires repentance and faith. It means that the blood of Christ has cleansed you. If you're a believer in Christ, hear these words with hope and assurance. You are now destined for heavenly glory. You share in this heavenly calling according not to your ability, not to your efforts, but to God's infallible. That means you can't mess it up. You can't stand in his way purpose. He's speaking specifically here to those in Hebrews who count themselves as part of the church in Christ, which is so appropriate that we're talking about it in the context of church on a Sunday morning. 
where many are gathered in churches all around this area, all around our nation and this world, as part of the body of Christ. And as we look around like we did earlier, it's hard to tell who's in and who's out. It's hard to tell who has genuine faith and who's just been going through the motions. To all of them, he says, consider Jesus. Stop what you're doing right now and consider Jesus. That's one of the fill in the blanks for you in your bulletin if you're following along. This is the heartbeat of the church. Looking to Jesus. Meditating on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. We consider Him. To do that, we have to consider Him rightly in light of the Scripture as God has revealed Him and God reveals Himself, His nature, His character. Not as we should reimagine Him in our own image to fit our modern sensibilities. No, we must consider Him in everything. Think, think about this with me. As we consider Jesus, He's not only the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. He is. He's also the author and the finisher of our life, of our attitudes, of our worldview. I remember as a freshman at Taylor University sitting in on freshman seminar and for the first time hearing the phrase worldview. I'd never, I'd never even heard that word before. Now, thankfully, a lot of Christian speakers and authors and even pastors are mentioning it, but it basically is that the system of how you view the world around you, what you believe to be true about you and yourself, the world around you, how the world works, how God works and interacts with the world. Where did this world come from? Did it come from God? Is God the creator of all things? Did it come from time and chance and evolution? Where did we come from? Were we created, men and women, in the Imago Dei, the image of God? Or did we evolve out of slime that somehow developed legs and crawled its way out of uh, the ooze that was the early oceans. What's the nature of mankind? Are people basically good? Are they basically evil? Were we born good or were we born with sinful selfishness? The answer to all those questions, the writer of the Hebrews says, is not found in having uh, some cheat sheet where you can look at the end and, and go, oh yeah, that, that's the answer to that. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to see this in several weeks, verses 2 and 3, where he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorned its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, consider him. It's the echo from what he's saying here in chapter 3. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners because of their worldview, because of how they viewed him and what to be going on in their world around them, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Oh, I'm telling you, Christian, if you fail to think about worldview with respect to yourself and those around you, you will look at things uh, like... Uh, Facebook, which frequently lies to us. I love that your daughter said that. Uh, we will look at elections. We will look at people on the opposite side of the aisle from us, and we will go, how is it even possible that a rational human being would think like that? You must be evil. By the way, that, that's how you end up with things like civil wars. As opposed to saying, this is not a good and evil issue. This is a worldview issue where you are not thinking rightly. I just heard a pastor that I respect so much feel like he completely let me down. He was talking about how people are thinking with regards to our nation and our future with the elections and things like that. And he's like, there's a lot of Christians who think this way. And it was sort of an inconsistency in their biblical worldview of how how the church is to work, how the world is to work, what, what is the value of human life upon this earth. And then he's like, we just have to acknowledge people think differently. We do. But we must acknowledge that they're thinking wrongly because of that worldview. They're not thinking with a biblical grounding underneath that worldview, and we need to speak to that. Not scream at that, because I don't know if you've noticed, when you start screaming, people stop listening. That's what our nation's done for a whole bunch of years now. 
No, we need to listen to the words that they are saying, that we can hear their heart, that we can see where their worldview is, that we can speak Jesus into that and say, consider him. Consider the gospel as part of this. That should shape, by the way, how you respond to your husband or your wife. It should shape how you respond to your children. It should shape what kind of worker you are tomorrow morning when you get up and go to work. He says, therefore, consider Jesus, the apostle, the high priest of our confession. Verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him? The God the Father is the one who has appointed and ordained and sent out Jesus. There's a couple different aspects to Christ being the head of this church. The first one is this. He's described here as the apostle. Now, that's not a term we usually think of describing Jesus. We usually think of Jesus' apostles, don't we? The the 12 apostles who followed after him. But apostle, this is one of the the fill-in-the-blanks, means sent one. One who is sent out, one who is given a mission, appointed for him, is what he says in verse 2. He is the one who was sent on behalf of God the Father. So what is an apostle? Do we, do we have any modern-day versions of that? Well, when a king or a president wants to interact with another nation, but they don't necessarily have the ability or the freedom to go there right now themselves, who do they send? They send an envoy or an ambassador. Someone who stands in their place and literally speaks on behalf, if you're an American, of the president and all of the United States of America. That ambassador stands in one of the most important roles in that moment. That's the picture of what Jesus does on behalf of the Father. The Father commissions him and he stands saying, I do nothing of my own accord, only what I see the Father doing. I speak nothing of myself, but only what I hear the Father speaking. What an incredible thing to say for God the Son, co-equal for all of eternity, that says, I'm going to intentionally set myself in subjection to the Father. Again, we usually think of this word with relation to Christ's apostles, and I think that is rightly so because they shared his mission. Even as he was appointed, he was sent out, now he appoints, he sends out. It was his mission, not theirs. Luke chapter 4, verse 43 says, Jesus told them, and here's his mission, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, because that is why I was sent. The apostles continue that mission. They continue to preach the kingdom, to preach the good news, proclaiming Christ, By the way, our mission is the same, and it's still his mission. It's not even yours. It doesn't belong to you. It didn't belong to his apostles. It is Christ's mission. That's why Paul says we preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1.23. Just before that, 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That message of the gospel power of God. That's what Christ came to proclaim as apostle. But the second role was this, as high priest. Think back with me into the Old Testament. What was the job? What was the role of a priest? It was to be the mediator between God and man. God and his people specifically, those who were outside of fellowship of God's people, were excluded from the priestly sacrifices. And over top of those priests was the high priest who would alone go in once a year to make the atoning sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. By the way, the Jews still keep that festival today. It's called Yom Kippur. One day a year, the high priest alone would enter into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the whole nation's sin. But it wasn't powerful enough to stay. Oh, our sin had more power. We could sin our way outside of that atonement. And so year after year, day after day, they stood offering the same sacrifices again and again. Well, Jesus is not only the priest and the mediator of our relationship with God, how we are put in relationship to him. He is the great high priest. He is the only mediator, 1 Timothy 2.5 tells us, between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. We no longer have, listen, this is important, we no longer have nor need 
a priest. That's why in this church we don't have priests, we have a pastor. We, we have shepherds whose job is not to mediate between you and God. It is to point you in the right direction. Occasionally, shepherds have to get their staff and beat you in the right direction in pointing you towards Christ. When you have got your eyes off something else, it is loving to come alongside and say, Brother, sister, you're missing it. Consider Jesus. Again, that, that's the heartbeat of the church with Christ as the great high priest. Hebrews 9.15 says this, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Oh, Jesus is the apostle of that inheritance. He's the high priest of our confession. That, that's sort of a strange way to say that. We probably wouldn't word that like that today. I read one commentator who said that in some of your translations may say profession of faith. Some say confession it corresponds to God having spoken to us by his son and then sent the apostle in Christ, sent the high priest in Christ. And here, here's fill in the blank for you, that what God proclaims, we confess. What God proclaims, this is true, we confess, God, this is true. No matter how I feel today, this is true. No matter what happens with my family in days to come, this is true. Not because I feel it, but because God said it. What God proclaims, we confess. Church, why do we believe what we believe? It's because it's the good news. It's the very message that Jesus proclaimed, testifying with his life, testifying through his apostles as they gave their lives and their blood to say, this is true preserved for us by the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. If you were to ask a Hebrew at the time that this book was written, why do you believe what you believe? They would have given you an answer that could be distilled down to one word, and that is Moses. Moses. We are the children of Abraham, but because of Moses, the giver of the law, Moses, the prototype for every prophet who would come after him. We know what God asks of people and we know what it means for us to be his people. So the writer to the Hebrews. By the way, since we don't know who to the writer the writer of the Hebrews is, we should just say it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who has breathed out all of scripture and so since we don't know, it's the Holy Spirit who has said Jesus, the apostle, the high priest of our confession. Verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Mark that word servant just for a second to testify to the things that were spoken to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as son. Now here's a bad habit that we have. Because we live in this time, in this generation, when we talk about someone being greater than someone else, we usually do it like this. This person is awesome, and this person is terrible. Right? If you're a Republican or a Democrat, your guy's the best, and the other guy is probably the Antichrist. Right? If you're talking about even just your favorite sports heroes, we, we talked a few weeks ago about who's better, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. We don't just talk about who's won more, who's achieved more. We talk about, I love this guy or I love this team and I hate this team. Isn't that how we do it? That's not how the Holy Spirit here speaks of Moses. That's not how the Holy Spirit speaks of the old covenant, the old law that has come before. He says Jesus is greater He's worth more honor, but that doesn't take away the honor that they had given to Moses. It doesn't diminish him. It doesn't put him down. And yet, over all of that, Christ is exalted. I want you to take note of this word servant here that it used in verse 5. It's not the word that we would anticipate it being. Most of the time, when, when the New Testament uses the Greek word for servant, it uses the word doulos. It's the word for 
slave. Albert Moeller says this, biblical translators have historically under-translated the word slave because of all the cultural baggage attached to it, especially in America. Especially in the English-speaking world where we have a certain uh, preconceived ideology about what slavery looks like. And yet when we look at the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 18, even on my slaves, this is the day of Pentecost, both men and women, I will pour out my Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 6, read it for yourself later this afternoon. You were slaves to sin, and he says, now be slaves to righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul describes himself and his ministry, by the way, ministry means service, as I am your slave for Christ Jesus. Surprisingly, though, that's not the word we find here. It would make sense with how the New Testament normally speaks about it. In fact, I would think it would make sense if we were talking about one another, but there is extra honor that is given to Moses in this passage that if you're just reading in the English, and by the way, I can't read the Greek, but I can look at commentaries that you miss. Rather than using the word doulos, which is slave, he uses the word therapon, which means a servant held in high position of nobility, under the authority of the one who's appointed him. And by the way, it's the only time in all of Scripture that that word servant is used. Almost every other time, you and I and our service before God are described as his slaves. Now, don't think American slave. We talked about this a few weeks ago. A slave was a treasured possession that was well cared for and taken care of. And yet when he speaks of Moses, he says this is a special servant. This is a noble servant servant. I mentioned ambassadors a little bit ago. Kings and presidents will send their ambassadors to go in their place, speak in their name. It's a very important position, but Dr. Bengal, who I I was reading about this this week, said this, an ambassador in the absence of the king is very distinguished. Ah, but think about this. In the presence of the king, he falls back into the multitude. Oh, that's what we see in Moses, this distinguished leader of the faith. This father of the faith, only when Christ appears, when our hope appears, Moses just seems to recede back into the crowds of the faithful who are gathered around the throne right now. Where's Moses? Right now, around the throne with all the saints who've come before saying, Worthy are you, Lamb of God. Oh, it's a beautiful picture. And we've been given the same message. We've been given the same commissioning, the same sending out. What is our mission? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Oh, let that, that word sink in with a little deeper resonance this morning. We are Christ's ambassadors. You are Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us. So we implore you, on Christ's behalf. This was his mission. This was his message. It's now God's voice calling to people through you, be reconciled to God. That, that's your mission, Christian. That is the mission of the church. Moses was the prototype of all that was to come. In fact, it says in here, this is one of the fill in the blanks, Moses was faithful in God's house. God's house that he was building, Moses was. Notice the past tense verse of that. He was faithful in God's house. In what God was building, Moses was faithful to do his part. But Jesus is faithful. That's current. That's right now. That's forever ongoing over God's house. Can you hear the difference? Oh, Moses, this elevated noble servant of God was only a worker in God's house and Christ rules over God's house. There's some strange verses in here that, again, we probably wouldn't say it like this. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as a builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now stick with me. We're going to unravel this really quick. It's actually pretty simple. Imagine Joe Yoder. who we, We just celebrated the birth of their child this morning. Joe Yoder builds a house. And he, he tells you, Guys, it's almost done. 
It's the best thing I've ever built. In fact, it's magnificent. Joe, if you're watching, I'm sure everything you've built is magnificent. But this one's special. And you, you sort of pull into the driveway right as he's putting in the last screw. The, the last thing that is going to tie it up and hold the whole thing together. And Joe stands just beside the house. And you walk to him and then you pass him by. And then you stand directly in front of the house. And you say, oh, house, you are beautiful. You're majestic. You did so good in letting Joe build you. Oh, I'm so impressed. I'm just, I'm basking in the glory of you, oh, house. It's ridiculous, isn't it? No, we would look at it in sort of recognition, maybe even awe and wonder, like this is phenomenal. Only we don't then praise the house, we praise the builder. Does that make sense? Moses is working in God's house, establishing God's house, building up God's house. We don't praise Moses, we build, we praise the builder. We praise Christ, the head of the church, the ruler of his house. Jesus is faithful. By the way, he's not just faithful in the house, he's faithful to us who've been adopted into that house. Because that's true, we can do our best at being faithful. So kids who are in the room, let me ask you a question. How many of you, let me see your hands, how many of you love cleaning your room? Oh my gosh. I, there's like three, four voluntary hands, one got pushed up back there. Like that, we're not counting that vote, right? That was, that was coerced. Most kids don't love cleaning their room. Now there's a few... Uh, obsessive compulsive ones who do and then demand it of their brothers and sisters. You know who you are, right? But uh, for the rest of us, we're like, oh, it's a, it's a chore. It's hard. It's a drudgery. And yet we would have no ability to do that if mom and dad didn't provide for us the house. If they didn't build the house, if they didn't give us the room, if they didn't fill that room with things, we don't have a room to clean. Oh, there's the same parallel for us as Christians. We have not built this Christian life. It has been given to us by grace through faith in Christ. So all of our walk in holiness is just in response to what God has so freely given. So Moses built this house in the Old Testament. But Moses wasn't alone. Come on, kids, as long as I got you interrupted. Who was Moses' helper? Do you remember his name? He was related to him. Aaron, what, what relation was he? Brother. So you have Moses, who is the prophet, the one who hears from God and then speaks on behalf of God. And then we have his brother, Aaron. Does anybody remember what Aaron did? We, we can have moms and dads involved here too. I'm, I'm not sure what that was. Did she say he was the first priest? Correct. Well done. Oh, man, so wise out of the mouth of babes. Again, uh, Aaron was, so Moses is the first prophet. Aaron is the first priest. In fact, he's the first high priest of the old covenant. And then comes Christ. Jesus doesn't just come in the role of Moses. He doesn't just come in the role of priest. He combines them in his self. He is the prophet. He is the great high priest. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. God's house, and I'm not going to take time to jump into this this morning, but it's interesting when you look how he talks again and again about God's house, God's house, God's house, and then suddenly the language changes. Oh, by the way, this is Jesus' house. He's pointing to the fact that Jesus is God. He says the builder is the one who is worthy of honor, and we are what God is building. We are the household of faith, not a building. He could have used a Greek word that talked about uh, actually physically building something. He didn't. He used the word that was to establish something. This is like establishing the house of God, establishing the house of David, as the Old Testament talks about. In our modern times, you can't be the king or the queen of England unless you are part of the house of Windsor. Right? Are you familiar with this? It is a household that you must be born into, you must belong to, to be part of this family. 
And we have been made. We've been established. We've been built together as living stones, brothers and sisters. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures. I'm going to try and fly through this really quick. First Peter chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and evil and slander of every kind. Like newborn babes, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you've tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him like living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built together into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. But did you hear the language, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope? Again, Moeller points to the fact that our works neither have the power to save us or keep us saved. Only Christ can save. Yet many have felt the pains and the pressures of this life, have said, I've longed for something more. I've prayed for something more. Believing that they were saved, mostly because they prayed a prayer that sounded like this. God, I don't want any pain or discomfort right now, and I certainly don't want it for all of eternity. So please give me my best life now and in heaven. Amen. Can you hear the difference between that and repenting of our sins? This is why there are so many false conversions as people come and say, yeah, of course, I would like a better life right now as well. And yet that is not the prayer of repentance and trusting in Christ. Again, our works neither have the power to keep us or to save us. Only Christ can do that. This is why we see with those false confessions so often no evidence of repentance. Years go by, no evidence of repentance. Years go by, hardness of heart. And then they walk away from the church and we say, I don't even know what happened. Here's the truth. They never turned from their sin. They never trusted in Christ and repented of it. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to read this probably uh, in the next week or so. Take care, brothers. Remember, when he says brothers, he's talking to the church. Take care, church. Lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today. As long as you got a shot at it today, exhort one another. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Again, when he says brothers, he's not talking to Christians. He's talking to the church. And to the church, which is filled uh, with those who are saved and those who are masquerading as if they're saved, he says, take care. Exhort one another. Encourage one another. Even warn one another that we hold our original confidence in the gospel firm to the end. We're almost done here. James chapter 1 says this is true for the Christian in the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Go home and read James chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 7 says that our trials prove the genuineness of our faith. You see a Christian go through hard times. You see their faith firmly grounded in Christ. You see a non-Christian masquerading as a Christian and you see them fall away from the faith. Have we not seen that time and time again? Matthew chapter 13, we're not going to take time to read it again. Go home and read it for yourself. Jesus tells the parable of the wheat and the tares. And he says, this is what the church looks like. You have good seed. Now, in another parable, the good seed is the gospel that is being spoken. Here, the good seed is actually Christians. It is converted Christians within the church, only it's been mixed together because an enemy has sown non-Christians into the church as well. Weeds that look exactly like Christians. In fact, the, the whole idea of weeds, uh, these tares and the wheat, means you cannot tell them apart while they are still growing. They look the same. Only what happens is as the wheat matures, it bears fruit. And as the tares mature, you find that the little, what looks like the heads of wheat are empty. Oh, what a beautiful and stunning picture for those who seem to be Christians, only they do not ever bear fruit fruit in keeping with repentance. Here's a question as we start to wrap things up. What's God doing in your life? What's he doing in our church? What's he doing in your family, in your marriage, in your job? Here's the answer. God is painting a portrait of himself, a mosaic portrait. 
A mosaic portrait is one where you take a whole bunch of other pictures, pictures of what seem like they are other things, but when you combine them, they become a bigger picture of something else. Now, because I don't want to violate the second commandment to not create any graven image, I'm going to show you a picture of Abe Lincoln. All right, so uh, this is a portrait mosaic of Abraham Lincoln. You guys recognize him on the left? Now, if you're up close to it like I am, even the one on the left looks a little rough. The further you are towards the back, the more clear it becomes. And on the right is just a close-up of his eyeball. Now, if you did join me up here on stage, you could see that every single one of those little pictures is a picture of a different president of the United States. There's only one in there that's actually a picture of Lincoln. Everything else seems to be a picture of something else. Here's my argument. God is actually doing this in your life and your family. That God has chosen to reveal himself. He is painting a picture of himself in the way that you live in your house. In the way that wives, you choose, like Christ, to be subject to your husband. Even as Ephesians 5 tells us, go back and read it for yourself this afternoon, that it is a picture. We are to imitate God in this, that the husband is not greater than the wife, superior than the wife. He has a role in this marriage that reflects the role of God the Father, and the wife has a role that reflects uh, both the church relating to Christ and Christ relating to God the Father, and it is beautiful when we choose to step into those roles. It is not saying you are less. We see it in creation all around us. God's Fingerprint, all creation testifies to the glory of God. We see it in the church, in soteriology, how, how the church is structured, how the church is ordered. There's some of us who it still kind of rubs us the wrong way that when we have the scripture reading portion, which hopefully when all this lifts and we can get back to that, we've called specifically the men to come and read the scripture. It's not because the women aren't good at it. In fact, ladies, let me let you in on a secret. You're probably better readers than the men. In fact, you're probably uh, stronger in your spiritual walk and devotion than the men, which is why we are calling up the men. Because God has said within the church, I'm going to reflect who I am, not who you are. Ladies, you are awesome. I, I have the best wife in this room, and without her, I would not be where I am. And yet, because I'm not reflecting me or her, I'm preaching this morning, and she's helping in another area of the church. Not because she's greater or lesser, but because we're trying to reflect Jesus and his church. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me here? God is painting a picture of himself. That's what the church is about. That's what your marriage is about. That's what your life is about. The sin that has stained you and contaminated you, the redemption that has saved you, the just judge and the merciful Savior, it's all Pictures that are put together, and as we step back and we look, we see the God who saves. Oh, what a beautiful truth. God is painting a picture of himself, and I, you, get to be in it. It's not a picture of you. That's why we can stop freaking out about whether who's better or worse, who's good or qualified or not qualified. This is not a picture of you. This is a picture of God, yet God has chosen to use fallen, broken people like you and I. Again, I, I encourage you, go back today and read Ephesians chapter 5. All of it. Read it in context. See that your marriage is not a picture of you. It is an imitation of God. Go and read it. I think these are in your bulletin. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Read the whole chapter, but especially verses 26 through 39, that the church has nothing to do with who is good enough and qualified enough. The church is to be reflecting who God is. Verse 33, specifically, this is really about God. This is about His order. Not just His order of how He thinks it should be, His order, how He exists within the Trinity. What a beautiful truth that you get to be part of that. Part of revealing this God to a watching world. Worship team, if you guys would come on up. As they're coming, I, I want to just point us to this truth, that God is putting His glory on display. By the way, that, that's why when we sing as a church, we don't sing about your glory. And there are tons of songs that do that. There are tons of Christian songs, and the, the melodies are great, and the music is phenomenal. 
Only you're the glorious one in it. No, when we gather as a church, we sing and celebrate His glory. In the church, in your marriage, or your singleness, in your work, in your family, in our nation, in God saving the elect and God condemning the wicked, in the Old Testament sacrifice for sin and the cross of Christ, in all of time, in all of creation, God is painting a picture of Himself. So I want to call us to consider Jesus. I want to call us as adults to consider Jesus. Kids, I want to call you this morning, consider Jesus. So when you go home today, here's some of the discussion. Sit around, consider, call to mind. What did the Old Testament priests do? We said that Aaron was the first high priest. There were many other priests in the Old Testament. What was it they did? What was their role between God and the people? And what does Jesus do as our great high priest? What are some of the ways that we can consider Jesus? Someone says, consider Jesus. Well, that's great, sitting in a church on a Sunday morning. What does it actually mean for our life that we could consider Jesus? What are the areas in your life where you could consider Jesus? Oh, and how does meditating on Christ's word and work help us to be more faithful followers? If you spend time thinking about, meditating, pondering in your heart, talking with your family, Christ's word and his work, which, by the way, the the same mission has been given to us, how does that cause us to be more faithful followers? And then as a family, read together 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. That says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the glory of the Lord are being transformed into his image with intensifying glory, which comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Oh, get this in your mind, this picture of God painting a portrait in mosaic of himself. You're being painted into his image that you might be part of reflecting who he is. And then pray together and ask yourselves, how can we better reflect God? How can we do a better job of being painted as a family into his image? And then ask God to do that. This isn't a call to try harder. This is a call to trust deeper. So would you stand together with me? We're going to close by singing, reminding ourselves, letting our hearts respond to this truth. But even as we do that, I I want to call you not just as holy brothers, the church. I want to call you as individuals. Consider Jesus this morning. Maybe you're one of those who has just gone through the motions for a long time in the church. I want to call you to real faith. Whether you're in this room, whether you're watching the live stream, real, genuine faith in Christ. Saving faith in Christ. I want us to just take a moment and ponder that, and then we're going to sing. We'll take up the offering as we sing. Uh, so if you're watching online, you can, you can go online, go to the website and do that. If you're here in the room, there's boxes in the front and the back. Let us give of ourselves to the Lord, whether it is our finances or our hearts, to rightly consider Jesus. Let's sing together.